Welcome back, everyone. Uh, for today, Pamela Between Two Worlds returns to talk about Josie Packer with me, and um, I'll hand the mic over her to her so she can uh, talk further about it. Hi, everybody. My name is Pam. I'm, uh, as you know, I was on the Albert episode a few weeks ago, and thanks to a uh, message that Colin got back in back right almost right after the, the Albert episode aired from 1400 River Road, they asked me to come back on for a Josie episode because they thought I spoke rather eloquently about Josie on my posts in in on um, the Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds group. So I uh, so in order to thank them because they've cited me a few times, they've been very complimentary about my work and my on the blog and on Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds. I decided that this is kind of a thank you to them for um, what they've done for my kind of image. So thank you 1400 River Road for having, for requesting my presence on this episode. And I also wanna give a small disclaimer for this episode before I get into the uh, discussion about this. If you have seen my profile picture on Facebook or anywhere else on the on the blog page, I am a white woman. I am going to be speaking about the the uh, the experiences of a woman of color. So I want to be very specific in saying that I may lack some sensitivity on some issues with with the fact that she is a woman of color in the United States. So I just want to and and if I do get something messed up because of because my uh, because of the fact that my worldview is very different from what Josie's would be as the fact that I am a white woman and she's a woman of color I am very sorry and I would hope one day that maybe Colin could have a, a, a woman of Chinese heritage or a Chinese American woman on to discuss Josie in, in a way that would be culturally sensitive towards her towards her background. Thank you for the introduction for that. Actually, speak of introductions, it's probably best to start with Josie because literally the first character we see in the pilot is Josie in the reflection. And, uh, you know, I know that initially... Uh, Isabella Rosalini was lined up to play the role of Josie, naturally because of Lynch's relationship with her at the time and just the allure that Josie has. But there's something incredibly deliberate about the reflection being the first thing we see. And I can never pin, I, I mean, I would love to say that I have a, you know, an articulate view on Josie and being in her reflection in the mirror, but I don't know if I really have one. I just know that there's something that I just feel very much so when I see that uh, first shot of her. Well, I also think that it's a very interesting shot as well, especially since we see it repeated twice more during the course of the series, one time before she dies. And then then the next time is in that part 17 when um, Laura's body quote unquote disappears. And we, we see her, we see jo Josie's image again on the screen. And we see that re repeat of the first few scenes of the pilot and Part of me thinks it was because maybe because of Isabella Rossellini. I, like, I don't have any proof with this, of course, but maybe because of the fact that she was, um, is the, uh, that she was supposed to be played by Isabella Rossellini. Of course, David's relationship with her. Maybe Josie was supposed to play a bigger part in the show than what was originally put on there. So maybe that was going to be, uh, not. maybe she was going to, another victim or another one that we see something happening to her that was that was seeing the double image and things like that it, it might have been a little bit more of a bigger role if if Isabella Rossellini was there but I think the double image works for Josie because she does have so many she isn't another kind of onion you've got to peel apart because you see so many aspects of her life throughout the course of the of the show I think she's a rather well-developed character for um for what how little how not how little but how just how much she's on the screen you know it's, it's not exactly she's 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 a main character but she's not an overwhelming main character like a harry or a dale or um donna you know she's or an audrey she's not on the screen all the time you know there are times in, in several episodes where she just disappears she's not there anymore she's she's doing something else she's she's somewhere else in another location that's not twin peaks 
Actually, I would say that in the case of Josie's disappearance, actually, that's a great point to bring up is that the fact that she goes missing for a while actually adds to the allure of her, primarily through uh, through the relationship with her and Harry in particular, because I know that people feel very strongly about their relationship. I've seen people that are actually on board with just the dynamic, however dysfunctional it is, but they're on board for it. And then there's other people that sit in the category that it's actually just a either a bad relationship and sometimes even a boring relationship. Uh, my take is that it is whether if you know they're not on the same page on it, but uh, it's more of a transactional relationship where Harry is just swept up by Josie's look because I mean there's no getting around it. Joan Chen is unquestionably radiant, and then conversely with Josie, she uh you know it's kind of an extra insurance for her just because if she has the if she has the sheriff of Twin Peaks basically under mm-hmm. her spell. That actually, you know, that actually helps her with a lot of legal problems that she would otherwise have to worry about. I see that relationship um, rather interestingly because I think I made a post on this um, back in March, I think, or quite a bit ago. I think when we uh, had a Harry Truman Day on our on our group page, and one of the things I thought about is um, I don't know if it was love on her side, but I know it was love on his side. It was not. It was, everyone thinks oh, it was the fat infatuation. It's lost on his side. He she, he just thinks she's so beautiful. But I think when he she started to turn her eye toward him, towards him, and um, if even if it was not something that was love, maybe she wanted to attract him because of the fact that she wanted to distract him from all of the bad things she's going to be doing um, and all of the the illegal things that she's about ready to do. So she said, by might as well get the sheriff on my side, the most powerful man in town and the most powerful and quote, and most virile man. I mean, we she could have done another Lana and got the mayor, but she realized that she needed actually somebody who was, who could think and who was younger and, you know, and I think so. I think that there was part of it that may have not been love on her side, but I think it was definitely love on his side because I come from, I all go through a little bit, again, like Albert episodes, it's impossible in Twin Peaks to go outside of your personal life because there's a lot about Twin Peaks that kind of connects to your personal life. So um, when I, I went to a high school that was very football centered. I mean, extremely football centered I mean, to the detriment of other sports. And the high school football team were kind of gods in my in my in my school. So when I look at the see something like the secret history or talk about, you know, think about Harry and the fact that he was one of that great team that almost won the state championship back in the day, I'm equating it to the godlike status of many of our high school champions in our my high school and saying, these are the kind of guys that never really get out of that high school mentality and were, th- were thought of like gods. So when they are in their little town, they never really leave their little town. And they're still thought of as these godlike men who almost won the same championship. A lot of the girls in the local community will look at them very differently. Am I being looked at because I'm the local celebrity or am I being looked at because I'm me? So when an outsider like Josie is looking at Harry S. Truman, with eyes of love, no matter if those eyes of love were put on for fail, for false purposes, but for all intents and purposes on his side, he thought it was love. He's saying, she's an outsider. I like her. You know, I like, she's pretty, she's beautiful. And she's looking at me and I'm not, and it's not because I'm the local celebrity. No, actually the, um, and actually one of the things that's uh, interesting about the Sheriff Truman dynamic is we were talking about this before recording is that we we're talking about the final entry Laura had about Josie in the secret diary is that it's something that I believe people miscontextualize and even myself before I went back to research it. And I think now is probably a good time to go through this before we kind of wind down on Harry Truman and, uh, you know, move on to the other aspects of Josie because, uh, in the secret diary on uh, June 4th, Laura writes, dear diary, I've been working with Josie on her English lessons for a while now, and she shows very few signs of improvement or efforts to improve. I know that Josie was a dancer and a prostitute in Hong Kong when Andrew fell in love with her and saved her life by bringing her six years ago. And I think she still has more than that lifestyle in her than most realize. She's treating our sessions more like poorly executed seductions, and the more she comes on to me, the less I respect her. It's not that she's all over me. It's different than that. She mentions Bobby a lot, and I can tell she is jealous of him. She makes too many insinuations to my sexual going-ons for me 
to believe that she is not a darker person than the town thinks. Poor Sheriff Truman. It's just, I feel like it's important to at least put out that, you know, Laura's uh, insight on Josie before, like, we really dive further into the character. That is true. And I think because Laura and Josie are far more similar in characteristics than, than, I, I, than a lot of people would think. And it makes me sad to see how many fans don't like Josie but worship Laura. Because, you know, how many fans do we see like, look at Laura and say she is... Uh, you know, I did. I did another post. I did a few weeks, a few a few months ago. I think this one was March thirtieth. How many uh, fans look at Laura and worship her, and love her, and adore her, and feel sorry for her? And how many fans look at yeah, Josie, the same fans probably, and say, "Oh, Josie, oh, she's using Sheriff Truman. Oh, she shot Cooper. Oh, she did this." And yet they're very similar personality. They both use people. They both manipulate people. They both fall in love with people for under pretentious purposes. Um, I don't think that Laura felt love for Bobby in totally the same way that Bobby felt for her. You know, and she did make him sell drugs <laughs> for, for, um, for her to consume so that way she could stay awake. And yet we look at Laura as if she was this shining beacon on a hill and Josie in the other way. And am I, and, and, and Molly, uh, Molly uh, um, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, Molly, brought up a good point that it may be racial. And, you know, we may be looking at Laura as if she got the white girl, the white rich girl, like Cheryl Lee Ladder brought up a few weeks ago with the Ronette episode. Ronette is of the, of the cross the track. She's the poor girl. She's working class. We're not thinking of her anymore because she's working class. The same thing can be said for Josie with the fact that this might be a racial thing. We're not, we're looking at her as if she were, we're looking at her at a, as a racialized eye when we're looking at Laura as the nice blonde white girl who got, who's from a, from this, from the, um, from the good side of the tracks, instead of this, this woman imported in from another, from another country. That is an interesting point. Um, the thing I'm thinking of is that um, in the secret diary, this is the part where it feels not really in character of her, uh, character of Josie more specifically, is that when people read in the secret diary that she treats the sessions like more like poorly executed seductions. The one thing is that uh, is that I think it's worth mentioning is that she says it's not that she's all over me. It's different that is that it's more so she has this Josie has this jealousy towards Bobby. And my thing is that, um, you know, I think people kind of look at that and I'm actually in, in the in that same boat where a lot of it just doesn't feel like it fits in line with uh, with with Josie's character. No, because I think for for her being like having a weird seduction or a jealousy towards Bobby doesn't feel 100% character. For me, it's like the equivalent of like Hank, like, you know, it's uh, and so with character like Hank, he's very manipulative. He's very dangerous, but he doesn't seem like, you know, he's not like a Jacques Renault where it's like he would assault like a high school girl. Um, it's, it's not impossible, but it just, there's just certain things that just don't ring true with even bad characters in Twin Peaks. I'm not sure why she would feel jealous of Bobby. Maybe she was feel, maybe she's feeling jealous, not just of Bobby, but of Laura's relationship with Bobby. Maybe this was just at the very beginning of her relationship with Truman, or maybe she was trying to figure out if she should start a relationship with Truman. Who knows when this, when the timeline of her and Truman started in relationship to the diary, which is again questionable because the diary has weird dating anyway. But maybe she's feeling jealous of the fact that she was able to wrap, that Laura's able to wrap Bobby around her little finger. And again, another notification of Laura and, and Josie being quite similar is that Laura, maybe Josie notices how manipulative Laura can be. And that's maybe the poorly executed seduction sessions is each are trying to kind of maybe outplay each other. Anything you can do, I can do better. Maybe. <laughs> so it's like anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you, any, I could sedu out seduce you any day. And maybe that was the whole point is she's trying to seduce Laura, but Laura is a much more master at it. And Laura calls to manipulate somebody, wrap that person around their little finger can cause them to do things for the, do things that they don't think is right, that they will never ever think is right. If they didn't get their brain twisted around by her. Whereas Josie, you know, she had to kill Andrew. <laughs> she had to arrange for Andrew's murder. 
she had to run away from Thomas Eckert because people just, you know, somehow maybe the fact that it is poorly executed means people, because means things fall apart for her path fast because she can't keep things straight or maybe her story straight, which is a point I wanted to bring up um, about her relationship with Jonathan. Um, if you want to go that way is um, one of my points is, is her relationship to Jonathan changes to what she claims her relationship is to two people. She says to Pete that it's her cousin and with Harry, that's her assistant or vice versa. But one is her assistant and one, and one she says, I'm her, she's my, he's my cousin. So I always say that that was maybe one, I hate to use the word linchpin, but linchpin that made her stories start to really crumble for Harry. Harry is at that point, the fact that, that he was told that Jonathan's, her relationship with Jonathan is completely different. He was told her one way and then Pete tells her, no, 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 it was her, it was this other way. That's the, this relationship actually exists between the two of them. And then this inkling starts happening in his brain. And by the time that we get to the condemned woman and the episode beforehand, things are really starting to fall apart for her because she, I think because if she kept those, that story straight with her relationship to Jonathan, Harry would have kept trusting her to the point where they would have been, it would have been fine and maybe he could have saved her from Tom Eckert. But because of the fact that she didn't keep her story straight, things fall apart easily for her because she can't keep things straight. Maybe her stories keep, she can't keep her double lives straight. Maybe she's not a master at it because of what, uh, rather than Laura. Laura's a master at it. Maybe, maybe um, Josie isn't. Maybe that's this one key difference between the two characters. Laura's a master at it. Josie isn't. And that's the reason why things fall apart for uh, Josie easier because she can't keep her lies straight. That's not a bad point at all. Um, actually, that this is the, probably the last thing I'll mention pertaining to the secret diary, and actually kind of moves on to her past in the secret history. Is that while there's a lot about like relatively to the seduction aspect of Josie that does not ring true, a lot about what uh, about what Laura says about her past and Andrew Packard seems like it translates pretty well to the secret history. And because uh, the thing is that um, when I went through, uh, there's the whole it must be I believe ten pages of the Interpol records and Dale Cooper's uh, writings as well, is that uh, she is born her, and actually I do, I do apologize because I, I think I might mistranslate or mispronounce this, but uh, Josie's real name is uh, Lee Chun Foon, which translates to Upright Autumn Bird. And uh, her birth date in the secret history is that it's 1956, rather than claiming that she's six years younger, which actually, fun fact, the, the access guy of the town and the secret history both talk about how it seems on surface level she was born in 1962. But then uh, she talks about in her life growing up is that her mother was a prostitute who died not long after her birth. Uh, her father was a red pole enforcer who later became a deputy mountain master. And this is where a lot of the influence of her being more of this nefarious figure in China, because uh, there's always a fear of her father in particular is that by the time she was 16, she was running a drug and prostitution ring where she would entrap and extort administration and faculty at the private boarding Shanghai. And possible due to fear of her father, she graduated with honors. And then uh, later on, she would become a rising talent in the modeling industry. And then uh, her, her front for Coke distribution would actually permeate throughout the 1970s entertainment industry. Then, of course, there's, uh, to move on, there was uh, the quote-unquote accidental overdoses eliminated uh, dealer rivals. Uh, then there's a, she was possibly initiated in her father's triad, which was apparently unprecedented for a woman to do at the time. And, uh, and while she was rising up, she had, she was fluent in six different languages, had different aliases. And by the time she was 21, she was actually worth 15 million U.S. dollars. To wrap up her, at least what's you know, about her time in Shanghai in the secret history, her father was gunned down in 1980, and uh, that her rumor was that she carried the head out, which broke her oath, and that prompted her to, lead, to flee to Hong Kong. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into Andrew Packer and Thomas Eckhart once the, once the time comes, but at least that was worth bringing up the Interpol records uh, from her, because... It does seem like it fits the bill for what Laura was referring to in the secret diary. And I found it quite because I was looking at the same records. Uh, I, I I flipped through that last night. I took a little bit of like I jotted down a few notes just just kind of, and a few things that came to mind for me with this with this 
is again a, a lot of the the fact that we don't know too much about her life that that the the dates keep on changing, um, that she has a couple different backstories in there that you kind of have to figure out, okay, here's this one, here's one backstory, here's what really could have happened, and here's another date that says she was actually this age when she met this guy, this is um, Andrew or Thomas, and that was kind of like, oh, um, okay, and same thing with what happens in the show with Jonathan, you know, we, we don't, we, she can't keep her story straight. There's too many stories, too many background pieces of background and amorphous information we don't know about her that leave her as kind of a questionable figure, a figure that we don't know much about. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, maybe an immigrant route type thing, because when we look back at immigrant stories in the United States, and, and I'm doing my own personal uh, look into my own family background, sometimes you can't find records uh, for, for even people that you think are going to be important because, oh, it just doesn't exist, or dates have changed, or something happens in the, in the family records because of of, of immigrant stories being weird. So it might be another another instance of Frost saying, you know, Frost is a very politically savvy man and he knows a lot of about this kind of thing. So maybe that could be uh, speaking to the oddness of immigrant stories, how, how, how badly um, recorded they are back in quote unquote old country. Um, but the thing also that a couple of things that kind of stood out for me is uh, when she was, uh, is that he, the thought with, with, especially with her relationship to her birth father, um, if that is a true, you know, relationship, because we know how the subjectivity works in this, in the secret history. Um, I find it interesting that he was an enforcer uh, for the, his, for his triad. He was a Red Pole and Deputy Mountain Master, two very Twin Peaksy things, you know, a Red Pole, you know, red curtains, you know, lodgy thing, Deputy Mountain Master. There's Chilmy Mountain imagery in Twin Peaks. Uh, so, and he was also the second in command to the Triad Master at the time. So, I and she was all and Josie was trained by her father in criminality, like Laura was trained by her father in seduction. You know, her father, you know, used, Laura's father used her body um, uh, in, in, in a way that was untasteful. So did. Josie's father used her body in a way that was untasteful, just two different ways. Another way that she was initiated in her father's triad by blood oath. Um, I kind of see that as the same thing that was happening in the train car with Laura. Because Laura, at that point, when we see her looking at the mirror, her face turns into Bob for a second. And this, and the whole point, one of the, the things that fans claim is that that moment, Laura was supposed to be accepting Bob into her fully and becoming like her father and killing um, Ronette in the train car. So that was going to be her blood oath. Laura took, did not take her blood oath that night. She said no. So she did not accept Bob in her. Josie said yes to the blood oath took it and she accepted the evil inside of her officially when i was looking through stuff about the blood oath and a few parts in the secret history i was actually thinking about her dynamic with hank mostly at the end of season one yeah. is that uh one of the things that in it's interesting is that hank he has his own blood oath basically where he cuts open the both her thumbs and saying that they're effectively blood brothers but i was also thinking of how hank got in the situation to begin with and one mm -hmm. of the things that was was stood out to me is that, do you think that there was some sort of extramarital affair to Josie's benefit to have Hank in the situation he was in lean up to that? It wouldn't surprise me, but I don't want to say yes or no on any way because I don't haven't really thought about it in that direction. So I don't want to say a yes or no saying, oh, yes, I totally or no, because I don't say I wouldn't surprise me because Hank is. Will, will use people to his advantage too. I mean, look how he twisted Norma around to the point where she doesn't know which way is up anymore with him to the point and, and until she said, I am not, I, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. You know, there's that whole dynamic with, with those two that changes things frequently with, 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 with their relationship. And so uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was one um, but I don't want to say 
yes or no either way because I've never thought about it, whether or not they were sexual or not. My thing is that when I was reading through it, I was thinking about how lean into how he's the one that at least is supposed to kill Andrew. And his whole mm -hmm. alibi is that he's supposed to be like hitting a, you know, he was supposed to be inebriated, hitting a vagrant. And the whole thing is that he would go to he would go to prison for five years in exchange for a good sum of money. But the thing is that in the secret history, it says that it was a lawyer well outside of his price range. And the thing is that I have a hang up about is that of all the alibis that Hank could have had lean before Andrew Packard's death, did it really have to be killing some random vagrant and being in prison for five years? Because it seems like that would give Josie enough time to do her own thing and try to figure out, like, you know, keep him behind bars because he is a very dangerous and manipulative person. And I think that during that five years, he realized that that was a terrible deal. Because even in the, at the mm -hmm. end of season one, he talks about how he lost five years of his life and how what can he do to to ensure that it won't happen again. And Josie feels mm -hmm. very threatened by that, that uh, now that yeah. this man is back out, that he could very easily kill her, that this money in theory was not enough. It bought her time for five years, but or sorry, mm -hmm. I might be getting the timeline wrong, but yeah, at least it bought him a set period of time. Weeks. Timeline means nothing. <laughs> but but he is behind bars for a set period of time. And uh, mm -hmm. and it's like at this point, he thinks that killing her would probably just seal the deal. And it's a very underlying mm -hmm. threat as well. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is that she must have, you know, like just because, like I said, Joan Chen is incredibly radiant, that if she can seduce mm -hmm. her charms with Harry Truman, doing this with Hank to, you know, kill Andrew under like the most, like under like the circumstances that really don't work for him, it just seems like it's not that far off for me. It's not that far off for me. And in a way, H Hank is, if everybody in Twin Peaks has their mirror image, I think Hank and Harry are the mirror images of each other. They are the two that are the, the um, in many ways, I think Hank, and, and we're going off on a tangent here with Hank, but um, I think that Hank is Harry's doppelganger in real life. We, Harry needs no doppelganger because his doppelganger exists in real life, real time with Hank because Hank was the bookhouse boy, the best of the bookhouse boys back in high school. And he went off on this illegality path and he uses women and he goes uh, and he's untrustworthy and he's a mean person. Most of the time he exudes this ear, this veneer of friendliness, but he's actually the least friendly person in the world. And, you know, when he looks at the major and says, how is the pie? Pretending to be happy about everything like that. And then there's Harry concerned about everybody, guilt-ridden, you know, very sweet in nature to everybody stands up for his friends, stand, is a stand-up guy that is the, that, that the, the doppelganger, the, 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 uh, the doppelganger exists in real life, in real time with those two. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I said everything about the Josie and Hank dynamic. Um, do you think this would be a good time to move on to the Martells and Andrew Packard? Sure. This, um, one thing before we go back, just, just going back to the Laura um, connection with Josie, um, I also wanted to bring up Harry's note about her uh, when the secret history. Um, most of her died a long time ago. She already felt like a ghost is the quote that I pulled out from that. And it reminded me of the same thing that Leland said in um, Arbitrary Law. Well, not Leland, Leland Bob. He's so full of holes. You know, Leland's a babe in the woods and he's so full of holes. So again, um, the hollowness of evil, how evil becomes so hollow and so useless and it makes you feel like you're a ghost of yourself because you've involved yourself in something that is so evil. So um, even if you are, even if the possession angle is more being tempted by the evil and be allowing it in your life, you're destroying yourself from the inside. When, however, how much evil you do, it destroys you from the inside. It rots you from the inside to the point where you're a hollow person. Well, that's actually a really good way to uh, close out the, that dynamic. But um, no, I, I guess the uh, like what we could probably bring up with Andrew Packard is that uh, Josie first meets him. I think he's it's his first wife at age 70. And I know Catherine Martell's not really thrilled about it either. I guess the uh, I, you know, not long after she flees to Hong Kong, she refers to him. She, she introduces herself as like an art and design student and was an orphan from Taiwan. Uh, during that time, she stored her fortune offshore. 
And uh, before she met uh, Andrew Packard, she actually bought protection from Thomas Eckhart. And it says that she uses herself as collateral before Andrew arrived. And uh, I took that as like, you know, sort of like I was saying about the extramarital affair with uh, with Hank, is that maybe it's it's not that far off with Thomas Eckhart, like that she, when they say they use herself as, uh, as collateral. But then there's the whole thing that Thomas Eckhart might have anticipated this because uh, what she does is that uh, Andrew Andrew Packard uh, proposes to her in Hong Kong, where she actually rejects it. But then she shows up a few weeks later in Twin Peaks and says, I accept your proposal. And it definitely has that, you know, now that she's back, you know, now that she's finally out of Hong Kong, that she can finally like seal the deal and have basically this protection, uh, you know, in some way. And much, you know, much of this is to the dismay of uh, Catherine because that completely changes everything about the Packard sawmill that we'll see in the original series. But yeah, I think that sets the stage for, you know, at least what their what their relationship is. I think the, and maybe I misread some from the secret history, but that the killing of Andrew in the boat was something that Thomas Eckhart pushed for Josie to do. Yeah, because those two are business rivals. You know, Andrew and Thomas are business rivals, I think. I don't know how they become business rivals in a way because it just seems like they're both from different ponds. Yeah, seem, they refer to it as a, um, they refer to it as like business partners that turn sour, but at the same time... Uh, you're not really sure how they become business partners because of the fact that Andrew is coming to Hong Kong to do the business about the um, about the lumber trade and everything like that. And Thomas Eckhart seems like he's in underworld dealings completely you know there's no there's no cover operation for thomas eckard you know it's not like a ben horn situation where yeah he has the hotel and he has the uh and he has the um um store and then underneath he has the drug trade and the and the one-eyed jacks you know there's those the the two the, there's his there's his legitimate businesses and then there's his legal businesses but with and with um thomas it seems like this all legal businesses is all illegal trade. So it seems like how, why would, unless he had to beg a favor to be allowed in the market to begin with by Thomas and and somehow maybe Andrew being a small town bumpkin, you know, misread something in the contract, in the quote unquote contract, whatever contract was supposed to exist. I, this is purely conjecture. I have no clue. You know, I'm 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 riffing here <laughs> that something might exist, and somehow he was read something in the contract, and then you know, it, it then that turned to Thomas's ire against him, or maybe just the fact that uh, and that he was uh, that Thomas was supposed to uh, was sending Josie to be the spy on Andrew on this whole thing on this whole thing, you know, uh, what just make sure that he was under under the thumb properly. But but Andrew ended up falling in love with Josie and he stole her away from them and all this kind of stuff. It, there's so much dynamics you're not completely sure of when it comes to Thomas and Andrew's relationship and why Josie was the is is, is Josie the one that started is is that relationship the kind of thing that started it off. Mm -hmm. But I could see why in a way Andrew. And why not Andrew, but why Catherine would be upset about the whole thing, because I always view the relationship between Andrew and Catherine to be somewhat incestuous. That it leads me to think that it's not sexual by any means. It's not go. I don't think they've ever, you know, gone in that direction. But I think it's an over reliance upon each other to the point where it's almost detrimental to their outside relationships. Um, her relationship with Pete his relationship with others, the fact that he never married until the age of 70. And um, and so the fact that he comes home with a bride is um, at the age of 70 may be, you know, her, assigned to her that, he, you know, the, the, the fact that this other woman's got her claws in him. And I've got to now be careful. And I, it, this is not the way it was supposed to go. We were supposed to die together, you know? That's a really interesting point you're bringing up because I believe it's when Dale Cooper is writing in what we see in the secret history that he refers to it as an unhealthy devotion uh it's either mm -hmm. cooper or major briggs there's a there's a little parts where it's a little interspersed um once we get yeah. past the interpol records but that is a quote they do remember coming up in the secret history and you see it in the original series but when you have like you know like a voice like briggs or cooper saying that it kind of reaffirms that there is a 
like you said, there's it's not like an inherently you know there's 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 definitely inherent dysfunction in that relationship, even if they are on the same yeah. page. Yeah, it, well, you can even see it on on screen how um, those two kind of hang off each other a little unhealthily in in, in this on the screen relationship. You could see the body language between Catherine and Andrew be a little less brother sistery than it should be. You know that that sibling relate the sibling relationship is supposed to be kind of fun and adversarial. It's not supposed to be intimate, yeah. you know, that, that, that intimacy can exist, but it's, but I, I hate to bring up a tele, another television show that most of our Twin Peaks fans probably hasn't seen before, but a healthier, you know, look at a, a sibling relationship would be something like This Is Us. Now, if you've never seen it, it's about, a, it's, a, it's almost all about sibling relationships and yet they're adversarial. They're playful with each other. Sometimes they are intimate. They do hug each other, but there's sad times that you can tell that they are still siblings, but with Andrew and, and Catherine, it just feels very too intimate, you know? Strangely enough, it feels like Pete and Andrew have more of that sibling relationship, at least more in a traditional sense, because uh, those two in particular just seem like they have a lot of fun with each other. You know, not a lot of people have varying opinions on that part of season two, but all the scenes with Jack Nance and, I believe it's pronounced Dano Harleyhe. Uh, mm -hmm. They they both uh, they both have like wonderful chemistry in terms of like playing off each other and having that fun dynamic. But it, you know, it, there is something very strange when you compare that to what Catherine and Andrew are. Yeah, very strange. Very uh, in its way because it's Pete. It's Pete. He, he's he's not adversarial with anybody really. He's not. He's friendly with everybody really. You know, it's it's, it's just Pete because Pete's just the 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 fun spirited guy that just loves fishing. So it's 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 hard to for him not to be playful with 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 with. It's hard for him not to be playful with somebody because he's playful with everybody. He's playful with Audrey, he's playful with Dale, he's play, play, he's playful with everybody. So it's 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 a, it's that that kind of relationship and that kind of a man he is. Since we're uh, heavily on the topic of the Martells, I think we could probably talk about the contentious rivalry between Catherine and Josie because a lot mm -hmm. of their plot threads in the original series has to do with like cooking the books. There has to be like, you know, the their their dynamic with Ben Horn on who has their basically their territory effectively and the thing is that mm -hmm. it's not like when people think of twin peaks i think uh, a lot of like you know business deals of people trying to screw the other over isn't the primary thing but the things that joan chen piper laurie and richard beamer all play off each other very well and they do mm -hmm. make that like a much more engaging plot thread than what your average tv show definitely would have done at that time well one of my like i was like just in case you wanted to ask me what my favorite josie scene was one of the ones that like the two that came to my mind the one that was entirely the cutesy one was within the in the missing pieces with the two by four that's cute and I, that's a fan favorite i mean i i giggle whenever i hear the word two by four in real life anyway um, in, in regards to that scene, but my other favorite scene was what the one which she was with Witcher Beamer, and they were holding up the keys, the one to the safe, the one to the uh, to the safety deposit box, and they were threatening each other. I have enough to bury you with this so for, for how many years? They'll bury us side by side, and I, you know, it's another one where Ben gets a takedown. You know, it's, Ben is 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 put in a corner again because he's you know these are these two sharks are going after him you know there's josie being being one shark and there's Catherine being another shark and they are they're they're cornering him about this whole thing and he's at that point saying okay which person do i go with and he goes with you know the the, the he he i think he chooses his own path and again another one that leads to a destructive way yeah it's uh, actually the I, I guess this is also another good time to mention is that uh you have ben horn and Catherine martell who are 50 plus and then you have uh, Josie, who is uh, at least relatively younger than them, where she definitely, I mean, obviously Joan Chen, I think she was in her late 20s when she filmed it, but even by mid-30s, that's still, for her to be able to have an upper hand over Catherine and Ben really is a testament to her intelligence. And, you know, like we were talking about that survivor aspect to her, uh, you know, is that she's under the thumb of a lot of people, but she also knows how to stay a step ahead, like, you know, at one day at a time. I think her relationship with Catherine is very adversarial, though. And... In a way, though, the, the first scene, you know, how she, the first scene, the, the, one, the first scene that we really do see that adversarial relationship with whether or not to shut down the mail after Laura's passing and after Annette's disappearance. 
I think the reason we naturally at the first season we 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 really support um, Josie is because Josie wants to do the honorable thing because we're all in mourning at that point and we all want to see the world shut down. And um, after this horrible event and after seeing this horrible thing happen and after hearing the screams of agony that are coming from Sarah Palmer. And we all do agree with, 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 um, with Josie. And, but I do see Catherine's point a little bit because the money, the mill did lose money in that day. And that is the town's economy at this point. Yeah. So I, I kind of see both ways when it comes to that. But I don't think, I think that in a way, the, the, the emotional part wants to support Josie, but then the practical part wants to support Catherine. Yeah, because I believe it's well into six figures of money. And bear in mind, that's not by today's standards. That's by 1989 standards, where like a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars was a lot more then than it is now. Yeah. So you're you're definitely onto something about the whole. There's like the emotional aspect because from an audience standpoint, we're seeing just the devastation of Laura's death. But then conversely, mm -hmm. Catherine, where she wants the she wants the mill to thrive and to just uh, you know uh, to thrive, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, because there's there's, there's definitely more to that, but there is definitely mm -hmm. a standpoint of you know of a practical standpoint. I guess I'm trying to say because we do know that well, we do know that Catherine wants the mill to burn at one point or another. So we do know that she doesn't really care about it thriving just to like look like it's thriving until it burns. <laughs> Probably the next part to move on to because you know we we got pretty far into Harry Truman's relationship, Hank's relationship, uh, Andrew, Catherine. I guess now is probably the best time to dive into like Andrew's reemergence because that's like I, I would say out of everything in season two, that's like the big one for for Josie and for where her character goes. I think it's in, 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 and with that, I think we should also discuss um, um Tom Sacker because they're so intertwined. Yes. Those two are so intertwined in her in her brain at this present moment that seeing both come to the door or to her life, back into her life again, is so shocking that again, that dead faint that happens in that one episode in, in Condemned Woman. Um, the fact that she, that both are coming after her now and both are, and especially when it comes to Andrew, it, it, it seems like maybe it was love at the beginning, you know, and then maybe after he gets, you know, his boat exploded, he realizes who did it. And, and Catherine probably did tell him that she has evidence now, you know, there, there was, and so I think that there is the fact that maybe he feels like she used me now and now I've got to get even with her and 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 how Catherine said uh when he when she turned Josie into a maid in the house um says I'll feed you to to him by hand you know maybe he's complicit in the feeding to her by feeding the the whole thing about let's feed her to Thomas Secker by hand that's one thing is um and I believe it's Tammy Press in the secret history brings this up and I do actually agree with this part is that uh, they talk about how basically they treat Josie almost like it's like a magnify an ant under a magnifying glass, where it's just like they have this mm -hmm. certain vindictiveness towards her. And you know, mm -hmm. see, we can say what we will about Josie, you know, if by the Interpol records, but I feel like even if it's a bad person, there's just certain ways that you should or should not go about it. And basically feeding her back into Thomas Eckhart, because I think of uh, you know in the episode leading up to both his and her death is that it's like, hey, we're gonna shove her off to like this hotel room, you know, to to the Great Northern, this hotel room, and it just sets a very alarming precedent for Catherine and Andrew Packard that it's like they they know what this is, where this is gonna go. The one thing they mm -hmm. do think is probably worth mentioning is that in Harry Truman's letter in the Secret History, he talks about how he felt naive enough to believe that she shot him in self defense. And the thing is that I get why, you know, with Harry Truman, he, he, I mean, he feels like he's been lied to one time too many, but I feel like this would be the mm -hmm. one time where she actually shot in self-defense just by everything we know about Thomas Eckhart and Josie's relationship up until that point. The thing is with Thomas Eckhart, it's, you know, how she always said that he was my father, my lover, my torturer, my killer. And that's another Laura, you know, thing, you know. That is how definitely Laura a parallel to Leland. Laura, I even put down, uh, you know, Laura is to Leland as Josie is to Eckhart. That's that that parallel that happens because those two are, because that's another, you know, my father, my lover. Um, but when it comes to uh, Tom, when it comes to the fact that 
um, Andrew and Catherine are doing this, they're equally bad. <laughs> you know, one lied about being dead for five years or however long, you know, that 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 that, that time period was. One is also lying about destroying a mill. You know, one destroy one actively was in the process of committing arson and destroying an entire town economy just so she could and also cheating on her husband. So, you know, if you want to talk about being cruel people, look in the mirror. In the case of Catherine, uh, and this is a testament to her cruelty, Lena, everything with Thomas Eckhart, is that mm -hmm. in the season one finale, where Shelley's begging for her life, and uh, Catherine Martell, she's like sitting there thinking, uh, thinking to herself that, you know, how am I going to work on this strategically? And you know that with her, given how cold she was just in the first season, that if she thought for one second that having Shelley die would actually be to her benefit, she immediately would have turned tail. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there, there was no, um, I uh, and also probably just to shut Shelly up, I'll rescue her just to shut her up because she's causing me to have a headache right now. I need to just get this girl out of this, out of this building so I could, you know, so she doesn't scream to death. <laughs> I guess now we kind of lead up to the, I guess, main event, if you will, where she does indeed shoot Thomas Eckhart. And uh, this is the part where Harry and Dal, where uh, Harry in particular, he's finally coming to terms with like, oh wait, Dale might have been right about her this whole time, just because, you know, mm -hmm. the whole she's the assailant for uh, for Dale at the season one finale. There's a lot of stuff that's mm -hmm. not adding up. And then she just spontaneously dies, um, which um, I guess we could probably talk about the behind the scenes of like why this scene came to fruition. Um, well, we could talk. Well, yeah, because we, we knew we do know Joan Chen wanted out, mm -hmm. you know, she wants she wanted out. So that was that they needed to figure out a way to do it without uh, with, and maybe it could have been done a little bit more gracefully uh when it comes to like you know having her back in hong kong for, for full time or um having her arrested or something like that but at the same time the the ratings you know they probably saw the writing on the wall they they probably have to get a story done quickly so they 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 did get this ending out that was entirely twin peaks and i think it, and i know a lot of fans look at it and say does she really deserve a bob coming out under the under the um under the bed or does she does she deserve the 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 the, uh, the, the little mike being there um and I say yes, you know, she does deserve it because like, the 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 connotations with her being, you know, another Laura, you know, she is, there is this thing about, she did have a lot of fear in her during the last days of her life. She did do that dead faint in her, the previous part of that episode. And she is feeling a lot of pain, sorrow. She's felt a lot of pain and sorrow throughout her whole, her whole life. Still fully accepting Bob into her. You know when she when she get, does that blood oath with her father, so I think that there is a lot of it being justified that she just died because uh, of everything just happening fast too too fast for her. I mean, you know, and 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 it is Twin Peaks people. You know, we have to realize that something strange is going to happen, and it may not make sense to us. Yeah, I think that I my uh, I maybe maybe a fixation, but I think the why I think why I think of the behind the scenes so much is that when we see her die and then her face is in the drawer pole is that uh, mm -hmm. this is the thing that the last thing people saw for a while in Twin Peaks in 1991 because that's when it was indefinitely pulled. And that's quite mm -hmm. the plot thread to just leave hanging for what people at the time thought a show would never come back for. Well, it's, it's interesting that you, uh, another post I made, I, it's one of the things I did before to prepare for this episode is I went through some of my old posts about Josie just to see what I, I said about her so I could bring it back up. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed is that they, that the Packards and Martells are in the business of cutting wood. And if we all know Twin Peaks, another thing is the woods are alive. And I always think that it, it may not be the, the word I chose in the original post is the word punishment for the crimes of cutting wood and cutting down the spirits of the wood and using the wood as things, but maybe some kind of retribution, maybe some kind of saying, um, you're now part of us because you've you're you're part of the wood cutting business so now you're part of us now so maybe this kind of like um not to bring up a terrible awful movie but it, actually not a terrible awful movie but a, a movie that uh, the, uh, the movie franchise that was based on a book the haunting of hill house by shirley jackson and not to spoil the whole book but 
I suppose that most people have read it or have seen one of the film interpretations of it. But Eleanor, you know, is so consumed by the, by by Hill House that she becomes a part of it. You now she got she in the book and in the movie in the original 1963 movie she commits suicide or she runs the car into the tree and that's how she dies and now she's permanently part of Hill House. Um, and then and in the 1999 movie, which again is the, the terrible one, is that she is incorporated into Hell House after saving all those children's lives. And I look at that as the same thing with maybe Josie. Maybe she's now incorporated the spirits of the wood are kind of absorbing her in a way, saying that she is now being absorbed into the wood because she has made herself a part of their destruction. You know, you have to you have to you have to recompense, you have to pay us back for how much you've destroyed for us. Yeah, because uh, my thing is that I think of how how it seems like Josie still permeates the storyline, not just with Harry Truman coming mm -hmm. to terms, but there's other factors in season two and possibly season three. Because, um, you know, there's that part where I believe it's before Audrey goes to see John Jusswill at the airport, where Pete Martell, he's looking in the woods, says, Josie, everywhere I see your face. And, I, you know, mm -hmm. they, they talk about how, or at least he brings up to Harry that he was in love with her. And I took it as that for a while. But, uh, but there is a lot of talk that, you know, Josie's face is indeed emerging from the wood at that point. I think he just feels like very, uh, very swept up thinking of her. And then also uh, with David Lynch, when he did the season two finale, obviously it wasn't Joan Chen, but there was going to be someone like Josie in the Black Lodge. And uh, moreover in season three, where I actually I view that when Beverly Page is uh, when she's in her office, that humming sound is indicative of Josie all these years later. I don't have a sound theory of why Beverly Page would be the one that would set it off because it seems it's new to Ben Horn at that point. But I do think that there's some presence of Josie in in the Great Northern and during those scenes. I'm thinking that is partially it's Josie but partially I'm thinking that it may not be Josie because that's the same sound we hear when the giant is visiting Cooper that one time season two yes. in season two of episode one that's the same exact sound that that high-pitched mm -hmm. sound is the same um is the same sound as both both scenes so I'm thinking it's more Dale's thing indicative of Dale's okay. future quest underneath the 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 um because you hear the same sound when um James is going into the basement of the Great Northern doing his security check and he hears the and I think he is drawn to that door that will eventually open down to Dutchman's for Dale and that's that's that same door and um he's drawn to it I think because he hears the same high pitched sound in, in part 15 so part 15 14 15 which whichever one it was um and so that's the same thing that happens with date with um with the that sound in the great north I'm, I'm less thinking it's josie i'm more thinking it has to do with dale's future quote-unquote quest that he thinks he has to go on <laughs> Those are great points. Um, actually, that fits way more in line, I would say, just because you are right about the sound of the giant slash fireman. I think I just, uh, mm -hmm. I had this hang up because I know that Joan Chen, she sent an open letter to David Lynch about how she feels that Josie would still have something to do, like, you know, in the Great Northern and that mm -hmm. her arc has yet to wrap up. And I, I guess I just uh, honed it on that in a lot of cases, just because I do feel like there's a lot about her character now that she's in this more omnipresent state that there could be something yeah. to it in the great northern but uh i guess my my last part i've i've written down and it's actually my favorite scene pertaining to josie is that i think of the scene when harry goes to see Catherine martell and they're talking about josie after her death and this is the part where you know harry's starting to come around fully and recovering is that he talks about how josie could hide all these secrets and Catherine talks about how she says some of the effect of how what she felt in that moment might have always changed and that maybe the way she felt about him was actually true. And uh, it's just that, you know, there's something that feels it rings very true to not only Josie's character, but a lot of characters in Twin Peaks where they might not think they're lying at the moment, but uh, there's some that feels very true to them at that time. And that this is uh, this is how they justify, you know, getting through the day-to-day -day li lives of everything. And the thing that I find most interesting is that 
even spite of everything we're talking about the rivalry with Josie and Catherine, that Catherine does say say that she has like a certain admiration or respect for Josie, you know, now that she has time to like really sit back and think about it. I think maybe that's the, the case because Catherine is starting to now uh, is 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 now fighting against the the curiosity with the boxes. Um, and also, I think because Josie went down fighting. And I, if anything, Catherine, uh, at that point in her life, before both Andrew and, and Pete got blown up in the explosion, um, she, she, she's the one that would admire somebody who went down fighting, somebody who went down not giving up. So I think that that in admiration for her is, is connected to the fact that Josie didn't give up. She, she went down fighting. She, she went to Thomas Eckert's room that night. She didn't run away from, um, from going somewhere to the woods somewhere and, and hide. She went straight to Thomas Eckert's room that night, no question. Mm-hmm. So it's, there, there is going down fighting. One thing that I wanted to cover was the fact that she isn't exactly the most well-connected character in Twin Peaks. You know, she doesn't have many friends. She only has, has um, besides the Martells and Packard's connection, her only real connection outside of that, fa- that, that familial in-law-y connection is Ben, Harry, Laura, and Hank, which is like the least amount of threads that go to her as in any character in Twin Peaks. You know, we have Laura that is the center of the web. We have, even with Audrey, who is kind of more of the low, one of the lonelier characters, we have her family, but we also have Dale. We also have her high school friends, you know, people that she knew in high school. We have a lot of connections with her. We have a lot of connections with other characters, even the one characters, the characters that we think are kind of insular, like Harold. You know, he even has a little bit more connections than, than, than Josie does. So she is another instant instance of a lonely soul. And when before we even started recording, my brain had this connection that I had to write down. Maybe that's the whole point of the term lonely soul. Um, they are so dis- disconnected from the world that they're easy prey for evil. They fall into despair too easily. So that way, and that's what happens to, to, to her at the end. She falls into despair way too easily. She faints dead away. And that's what leads her to, yes, she goes down fighting, but yet at the same time, she does give in to it. She gives in to the fact that she can't do it anymore. So her brain turns off, the electricity turns out in her brain and she's done. That actually does make me think, um, because this scene plays when Josie returns to Harry. It's also Harold Smith's theme, is that uh, when you listen to that theme, it has this very serene, calming feel but also it has this almost like fragile feel. And then there's uh, then there, there's music that emerges that has this like low key malevolence to it. And it really fits perfectly to what you were saying about her character and loneliness. And the other two points that I wanted to point out is the, is a kind of cool connection with the coat that she wears when she kills Cooper, the Vicona coat. Mm-hmm. Because I, I kind of a couple of months ago did a small little, like what is Vicona? Because I didn't know what exactly a Vicona was because I wanted to see what a picture was. It's part of the Llama family which is kind of cool, cool when we have the llama looking at Cooper. Um, and it was also, um, I'm looking at the Wiki, Wikipedia page right now, which again, Wikipedia, because we, I'm a librarian. Who knows if we can trust this source or not, but still. Um, they are also uh, have extremely fine wool, which is expensive. Um, and it also has, um, it against, was against a lot one time in history for anybody but royalty to wear the Vicuna garments. Um, it is also Vicuna is the national animal of Peru and appears in the Peruvian coat of arms. So I, it was interesting how this is something that only royalty wore and now, and, and, and Josie being one of the richest women in town is where is the, is, is somebody that is identified with a Vicuna coat. And Peru and in Peru with Machu Picchu being one of its major centers is a very mystical place. So we have that mystical connection with Machu Picchu and Peru. Um, another thing that I think is interesting is if I read, remember reading correctly on, on somewhere else about Vicuna is as a prey animal. So small and little and prey-like, you know, it's just one of the smaller varieties of llama. So I think that's an interesting thing about prey species and, and the fact that she almost feels like she's caught somewhere. So that was one thing. Another connection I also wanted to make. It's a very kind of cool connection because I'm as I have my master's in history. And when Catherine is pulling out is is pulled out that book and reveals the gun underneath that um that 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 um thing, the book that is right next to the gun 
is a, is a biography of Mary Queen of Scots written by Antonia Fraser. I had to read that book for my, for, 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 I had to read that book several times for, well, at least one time for my uh, master's program because I have my master's in early modern England. So, uh, and it's interesting that we have this dichotomy of, Laura, of, of Mary Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth in that historic connection and Josie and Catherine, you know, the older, the older queen, Mary Queen, um, um, queen Elizabeth, the red hair, the one that was born to rule, the one that never had to struggle to get her, to her position, you know, the one who had to kind of struggle to get to her position, but yeah, kind of very much um, the, the one in charge, the one who ends up killing her in the end, you know, and then Josie, younger, the, the you know, the, 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 uh, the one that kind of, you know, is, is always trying to use men and use men in the worst possible way because men are abusing her. And so there's this really interesting historical connection between Mary Queen of Scots, Queen Elizabeth I, and Josie and Catherine, and that similar relationships exist between the two of them that I thought was a kind of apropos thing when it comes to uh, that book being right there where that gun was. Oh, actually, that's a lot of great stuff to sink in. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely also a lot of stuff that uh, that fits in. Definitely the, the llama part. I, I, I think of all the things, I'm still just thinking about that because... Just because mm -hmm. we have that great, uh, I mean, I know it's an alpaca, but it's still, there's mm -hmm. still that interesting parallel of the two. Mm -hmm. I guess the last thing I do have is that, um, is that for Doc Hayward's report in The Secret History, where ultimately this page is saying, I don't know why she's 25 pounds lighter. And of course, you know, we mm -hmm. know stuff about the, about her going the drawer puller, but I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on Doc Hayward's report or if you had anything you're reading between the lines on that one. I took a class um, on my, on, again, uh, going back to my college years, um, one of my classes, one of my, my minor, when my undergraduate years, my, master, my, my, my major was history, but my minor was religious studies. And one of the things I took was, um, which what makes me very excited when, whenever uh, Rosie of Diane brings up the fact that she was a sociology of religion major, I took a class in psychology of religion, which is how people process religion in their heads. And one of the things that uh, uh, that a lot of people bring up is after death, the body does weigh certain a little bit less. It's like you weigh the body at uh, at at uh, just right before they die. They weigh one thing right after. I mean, exactly right after they pass away, their body is slightly lighter, like some kind of some kind of infinite percentile that is like so hard to measure i could be wrong but i believe it's 21 grams i remember at least there was a movie actually with uh naomi watts where that's like a big part of why the movie is called 21 grams because everyone no matter how they die always weigh that tiny bit less yeah so maybe that's the soul leaving the body the weight of the soul so maybe since her soul was so heavy by the time she died that it was now it, it took part of her body away from her too because like we said most of like harry's note said most of her died long a long time ago she already felt like a ghost and ghosts weigh nothing so she when she died she was already a ghost her soul had had you know had carried her had 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 carried part of her her, her own body and her her own corporeality in a way I never thought of like the just the weight of what she had on her uh, in terms of mm -hmm. like, you know, emotionally would take so much of a toll that fits in very well for for what she was going through her whole life and just a lot of the decisions mm -hmm. she made lean up to that moment. But um, was there anything else left? Because I think I said everything on my end about Josie. Was there anything else left you you want to discuss? Just one small teeny thing, the upright autumn bird thing. I thought that was kind of cool because like we have the first image of Twin Peaks being that Wren. That 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 and that bird is a is a winter bird. It's not a spring bird. So the the little bird that's there, I forgot what I called it. And I know Stephen Miller is in his blog because I told him what it was a couple of years ago. And I said, Oh, this is this is the bird. And he said, Thank you, Pam, for telling me this. But I don't remember it right at this present moment. But it's a winter bird. So that's I thought it was kind of cool that that um, Josie's Chinese name means upright autumn bird. Um, when the bird that we see on the opening credits in the original series was is, is a is a winter bird specifically, not something that we see often during the summer to the springtime. The springtime is when, in blue velvet terms, the robins can return. 
But yeah, no, I think this is a great episode. Um, yeah, it's uh, I really liked your insight uh, about everything on Josie, the uh, like what the ring actually was in season three. Uh, the socio or uh, no, the psychology and religion adds a tremendous amount to to her character and what it means for her death. Um, yeah, I thought this was you know there was a lot of great stuff that I got from this episode. And um, was there any, anything else? Uh, of course, you know, everyone knows you from Between Two Worlds, both the Facebook group and the blog. But was there anything with this or anything else you want to plug for now that we're nearing the end? Um, not really. Um, tentatively, and I don't know if Carl will yell at me for saying this and, 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 and jumping his announcement. So sorry, Carl. Um, tentatively, we're planning something for maybe a little hawk events in august so a little hawk theme day sometime in august so keep an eye out for that but i don't i again sorry carl if i if i if i if i if i jumped your gun a little bit but like that <laughs> all right well um yeah it's uh i think that uh, assuming that this does come to fruition i think that'll be a really great thing for everyone to look forward to in august but uh, i just want to th mm -hmm. say thank you again for coming back on it's been a it's been a tremendous conversation i really enjoyed it you're, you're welcome i enjoyed this a lot <laughs> Together